have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, our fourth episode on neuroendocrine tumors and neuroendocrine carcinomas. And that quote, Josh, was by Thomas Edison in describing his journey towards developing the incandescent light bulb. And the reason I bring that up is that sometimes when you're working in this space, when you're doing research in this space, you must feel a bit like Thomas Edison, where you have so many ideas that should work, so many uh, things that you test and every single time or a lot of the time, it just seems like they don't work. I don't want to spoil our episode today, but suffice to say, that's going to be a running theme. First off, how are you, Josh, on that rather depressing note? I'm doing very well. I thought it was going to be General Grievous talking, but that was just a very much a long shot. Yes, very much a long <laughs> shot because uh, I don't have my chronic lung disease going today. But... <laughs> But today we're going to uh, complete our run looking at the evidence for neuroendocrine tumors by looking at their nastiest cousin, which is the neuroendocrine carcinoma. This is much like neuroendocrine neoplasias in general, a very rare disease entity, but unlike the NENs or NETs, they are much, much more aggressive. Josh, Get us started. Why don't you take us through the background on neuroendocrine carcinomas? And what a way to take out a month of neuroendocrine awareness month here down under in Australia. <laughs> That's how Josh talks normally. Don't ask me to do an accent because it with, would with not go accent. down well. <laughs> That's my Australian accent. <laughs> so let's let's push on. I've got a bit of a background here, Michael, and please feel free to ad lib and ask many of the questions about why I've decided to talk the way I talk. But neuroendocrine tumors, we're talking about later lines of therapy. We've delved into the nitty gritty of the available literature, but what we haven't really touched on is the neuroendocrine neoplasms when they switch from the tumors to the carcinomas. And today we're talking about neuroendocrine carcinomas. There are two categories and we've talked about the categorizations, but I'll summarize them again here. You have the well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors and those poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. The classic staging for the well-differentiated was grade one to grade three. Grade three, when it is greater than 20% of a KI67, it's subdivided again into neuroendocrine tumors that are well differentiated based on the 2019 classification and the neuroendocrine carcinomas, which are poorly differentiated and really aggressive and quite nasty. Most neuroendocrine carcinomas arise from the lungs. However, a small proportion arise from outside the lungs, termed extrapulmonary neuroendocrine carcinomas. From a management and prognosis perspective, up to 85% of patients with advanced, unresectable, have a poor prognosis, meaning the median overall survival can be as short as 5.8 months or less. One analysis by Bukhari et al. found that 93% of patients with gastroenteropancreatic carcinomas presented with lymph node or distant metastases, a factor unsurprisingly, is associated with a reduced overall survival. 
local or local regional disease may benefit from surgical excision, but often this is not the case due to late presentation. As an example, a retrospective analysis of 119 patients with pancreatic necks, NECS, reported a medium time to recurrence or metastases of seven months. Given this aggressiveness, adjuvant chemotherapy should be considered in eligible patients. Mao et al. and not Mao Zitung. That's Mao. There's going to be a different Mao. <laughs> a different Mao. Michael's just <laughs> shaking his head. Um, Mao et al. demonstrated that adjuvant chemotherapy was associated with a significantly improved median overall survival time versus observation of 57.4 versus 38.2 months in a retrospective analysis of non-metastatic, poorly differentiated colorectal neuroendocrine carcinomas. It's all sounding a little bit small cell-ish, Josh. The resectability and the high recurrence rates, the consideration of adjuvant chemotherapy that might work but frequently doesn't, the overall very, very grim prognosis. It sounds very much like it. And the uh, majority coming from the lungs, it sounds very akin to small cell lung cancer. Michael, that's why I keep you around. No, my partner in arms definitely hit the nail on the head with this one. So the treatment of the advanced setting, which I'll switch to, mirrors that are small cell lung cancer due to similarities on immunohistochemistry characteristics, tumor aggressiveness, and morphology. So although it's not small cell, I think it's very much a, a sibling of this family. When you look at the treatment, chemotherapy has been recommended in the first line based on the benefits seen in small cell lung cancer, and that's generally cisplatin or carboplatin coupled with the topocide or carboplatin plus arenotecan. Michael, I've never used carbo plus arenotecan in my practice for small cell. Have you? Not in combination. I've used it as a second line agent for people who can't have the OCA, the doxorubicin, vincristine, um, etoposide, I think that's it, uh, regimen. So, which is honestly most people after their progression on first line chemo for small cells. So single agent, yes. Combination, no. Yeah, neither have I. But it does form the backbone of one of the studies we're going to talk about later in this episode. So stay tuned. Of note, a recent randomized phase three study is looking at etoposide plus cisplatin versus arenotecan plus cisplatin in the first line advanced, advanced setting with digestive neuroendocrine carcinomas. They found no difference in median overall survival between the two regiments of 12.5 versus 10.9 months. And there's multiple other studies going on, including the Prodigy Fulfurinec, which is modified for Furinox. You might recognize that regiment from our dear friend pancreatic cancer versus the standard platinum etoposide. Mikey, they're not our friends. Pancreatic cancer is no one's friend. Uh, but... I'm so glad you clarified that, Josh, <laughs> lest people think that we're in the pocket of big cancer. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly it. And then you've got the CAPTEM in the neuroendocrine carcinoma setting as well, which we spoke about in one of our prior episodes, so feel free to check that out. But that was capecitabine plus temozolomide versus platinum-based treatment. From a management recommendation, what they discuss in this article, which we will link in our description, is 
First of all, do a pathological review, figure out what type of neuroendocrine carcinoma this is. Is it from the lungs? Is it poorly differentiated? They also recommend staging scans. They've set an FDG PET and an MDT discussion. Next steps, if available, looking at next generation sequencing. So mutations such as BRAF, ATM, NTRAC, gene fusions, MSI, PDL1 and tumor mutation burdens to look for alternative therapeutic options. They say early palliative care involvement, which is always a concerning feature in the recommendation summary and clinical trials. But as a summary in the first line, at present, a platinum-based therapy and the second line should be a fluorouracil-based therapy or 5-FU. Of course, depending on which way you're looking, the second line, you can look for targeted therapy immunotherapy, Folfiri, Folfox, or potentially, you know, Reno-Tecan or other such therapies. But it's going to be very dependent on site. And of course, most likely this patient would hopefully be at a high volume center or a preferred center given the rarity of this tumor. I think that's a very good summary, Josh. Um, very grim and you know, we have two lines of therapy, but probably not too much, but you're going to talk about some of the evidence behind that, aren't you? Yes, it's a, it's a great summary, but it's a pretty abysmal summary of options, Michael. It looks things like GBM and other such terrible pancreatic cancers. It kind of falls in the realm of we need better therapies sooner, please. Yes, I think that's that's the a good way to talk about the overall uh, landscape of neuroendocrine carcinomas. It's hilly bearless and there's not really anywhere you'd want to travel on it mikey <laughs> my terrible my my terrible analogy mikey mm. do you want to start with your potentially up and coming next generation of treatment that could harbor some small skerrick of hope for this subset of a rare cancer. Oh, Josh, you're really, really, you're really hedging your bets there with that introduction. And even so, unfortunately, I think you're overplaying this. I think that the fact that we have chosen the quote unquote new and exciting thing to go first is an indicator of the result of this trial. So, but nevertheless, we'll go through uh, the, the data anyway, because it is important to know. The other reason that we're going through this trial is that the agent has one of the coolest names I think we've ever had on this show. This is Spartalizumab. I warned people that I would be using that joke multiple times throughout this episode, but I think we'll cap it at once. Michael, I'm still waiting for the joke, so you've got one extra. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's a very tough crowd in the recording studio today. So this study was published in March of 2021, and it examines spartalizumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor that has previously demonstrated efficacy in solid tumors. Now, at my center, we've actually got one patient who, as of last year, was having an, an ongoing response to this therapy in, in the context of a clinical trial. I think she had lung carcinoid. We know that it is potentially efficacious, but the authors of this study wanted to look particularly at the neuroendocrine cohort. Now, for the record, the study does have a neuroendocrine tumor, aka a lower grade neuroendocrine tumor component. In fact, the majority of patients enrolled on the study did have 
uh, grade one or grade two well-differentiated neuroendocrine neoplasms. Uh, However, for the purposes of this episode, we'll focus on the relatively small neuroendocrine carcinoma population. So the study was a phase two single arm open label study of pre-treated patients with NEN or NEC. The intervention was spartalizumab 400 milligrams given every four weeks, and the treatment continued until progressive disease or toxicity. The inclusion criteria, patients had to be ECOG 0 to 2. They had to have progressed during or after systemic therapy. And interestingly, they could have no symptoms attributable to carcinoid syndrome, which in the context of neuroendocrine carcinomas, as we've said in previous episodes, is very unlikely. I think around 5% of patients have functional tumors if the histology is a poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma. Patients were excluded if they had a well-differentiated grade 3 net, that's that middle man that we spoke about in the last episode, neuroendocrine carcinoma of any origin other than gastroenteropancreatic, so this is specifically looking at a minority of neuroendocrine carcinomas, if they had previous PD-1 treatment, which would have been given in the context of a previous clinical trial, and if they had cardiac or autoimmune comorbidities, which is pretty standard for any trial examining immunotherapy. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints were duration of response, disease control rate, time to response, PFS, OS, safety, and quality of life. We won't go through all of these, but I think uh, our listeners will get the gist of it fairly soon. So in terms of the population, there were 116 patients enrolled on this trial, but only 21 of them had a GEP neuroendocrine carcinoma. So we are dealing with small numbers. That's the big caveat that we have to uh, include uh, when looking at this article, but it's a caveat that we've been doing for the last three episodes, so we're pretty used to it by now. The median age of patients was 59 years old, and the majority had pancreatic origin disease, disease that had originated from the pancreas at 57%, followed by colorectal, who accounted for 29% of the 21 patients. 67% had a key 67 of greater than 40 48% were post the first line therapy only, so a carboplatin-based chemotherapy, presumably. And interestingly, coming back to your point about MDM discussions and biomarker analysis, next-generation sequencing, Josh, the pd one expression in the patient's tumors was actually fairly minimal. So no patients had a pd one expression of greater than 10%, and the majority also had minimal concentration of intratumor CD8 cells, which is the main killer cell that aims to immunotherapy aims to stimulate. The results, as you ha- you can probably tell from the fact that we are doing whatever the opposite of puffing this study up is, the results are unfortunately quite poor. There was only one out of the 21 patients that demonstrated tumor shrinkage. And for reference, this was compared to almost 40% in the neuroendocrine neoplasia group. The uh, duration of response in this patient, however, was 270 days with a time to response of 53 days. That shows that, you know, one in a million patients can have really good responses with immunotherapy, but that should not colour or prejudice your recommendation. The recommendation being don't use immunotherapy. Uh, Five patients were not included in the analysis and of of those five patients, four of them had actually died before they got to a pre-specified endpoint, so that's not good. The median PFS was 1.9 months and the overall survival was 6.8 months, which is pretty much bang on what you were talking about, Josh, in terms of overall survival in the uh, standard neuroendocrine carcinoma population. 
The 12-month overall survival estimate was a little under 20%. So one in five patients or less than are going to make it to a year. Very, very grim. The benefit did appear significantly better in patients who had neuroendocrine neoplasia, lower grade disease. But again, neuroendocrine neoplasias tend to just be more benign and that's a relative term, of course, but less aggressive perhaps is the better way to describe it, less aggressive cancers. So not sure if the benefit compared to neuroendocrine carcinomas is because of the treatment or because of just better disease biology. There were no new safety features reported. Uh, two patients in the carcinoma group had grade 3 derangement of LFTs. Other reported immune-mediated adverse events were asthenia, fatigue, myalgias, and anemia. There was also no meaningful change in the quality of life survey, which managed to be completed by about 90% of the patients with neuroendocrine carcinoma. I'm guessing those four patients who passed away very quickly, they probably weren't uh, in a fit state to uh, fill out a questionnaire. To summarize this uh, rather underwhelming and disappointing study, Josh. And this is where I and this is where I got the Thomas Edison quote from. Spartalizumab has a low response rate in the treatment of neuroendocrine carcinoma. And the results were similar to those that had been seen with other immunotherapies such as pembrolizumab in separate studies. The small numbers make it more difficult to draw conclusions, but overall it's really, really not very encouraging. The best response was seen in a patient with a pancreatic origin neuroendocrine carcinoma with immune cell PD-1 expression of greater than 1% and CD8 uh, concentration of greater than 1% as well. Maybe there's a biomarker there to predict response, but you know, in one patient, you'd be pretty brave uh, slash the other thing to actually try it. And I'm going to finish this uh, summary before we get on to something slightly more positive with your article, Josh, with a quote directly from the authors. And this really summarizes the uh, the article, given that it's coming from the authors. Quote, single agent PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors have not demonstrated clinical utility in an unselected net population and should not be used outside of clinical trials. I don't think you can get much more definitive than that, Josh. You really can't. And it's interesting when I summarized that review article at the start and they said, if someone has a high PD-L1 to use immunotherapy. And Michael, it's somewhat like the Persians versus the Spartans, right? When while the Spartans held off the Persians for three days, 299 of those 300 Spartans died. Yes, although I don't think that uh, Spartalizumab could claim a Pyrrhic victory in that uh, the later Battle of Salamis uh, would prove a decisive Greek victory. We're going into a history podcast now, Josh, <laughs> so let's get back on track. And uh, why don't you speak about something that was slightly uh, more positive in the platinum-based chemotherapy space? Yep. One of the few times we say platinum-based chemotherapy is probably going to be or is definitively better than immunotherapy. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing the topic NEC, phase three randomized clinical trial, looking at the effectiveness of etoposide and cisplatin versus arenotecan and cisplatin therapy for patients with advanced neuroendocrine carcinomas of the digestive system. So what we know, and I've already gone through the summary and Michael's summarized everything else that most treatments are pretty terrible. Systemic therapy is indicated in advanced neuroendocrine carcinoma due to their similarity to that of small cell lung cancer. 
The issue is that most of the historical research to date has been observational or small in nature. And prior to immunotherapy used in small cell lung cancer, etoposide and cisplatin or irinotecan and cisplatin were both used. Now, in Australia, we use etoposide and cisplatin. I've never used irinotecan and cisplatin in the small cell lung cancer space, but Again, things change relatively drastically in oncology and with the advent of atezolizumab, maybe I'm going to surmise that that's why we no longer use that regimen. The primary endpoint for this study was overall survival and the secondary endpoint was progression-free survival, adverse events, serious adverse events, and that's pretty much it. So it's comparing the effectiveness. Mind you, this is not a non-inferiority trial. It's just comparing the effectiveness of these two arms. The method, it was a randomized phase three study based in 50 institutions in Japan. The inclusion criteria, so histologically proven neuroendocrine carcinomas, poorly differentiated necks and grade three nets that harbored greater than 70% neuroendocrine carcinoma component. The necks were allowed to arise from the esophagus, stomach, duodenum, small intestine, appendix, colon, rectum, gallbladder, liver, ampulla ovata, bile duct. They had to be. <laughs> That's a hell of a list, Josh. That is, that is a hell of a list, but not lung. Unresectable or recurrent disease, they had to be platinum naive, receiving no previous therapy for, for their neuroendocrine carcinoma and be aged between the age of 20 and 75 with an ECOG of 0 to 1 and adequate organ function. They were randomized 1 to 1 to receive either etoposide and cisplatin or arenotecan and cisplatin using a minimization mechanism. It was open label. From a treatment protocol perspective, just because I think it's worthwhile when you don't use these regimens often, you would get etoposide days one to three and cisplatin every three weeks at 80 milligrams per meter squared. And for the arenotecan arm, you'd get 60 milligrams per meter squared days one, eight and 15 and cisplatin 60 milligrams per meter squared every four weeks. I think, although I, I shouldn't harbor a judgment if I had a bad cancer, I would much prefer to have a regiment where I only had to come in essentially once every three weeks than every seven days. Patients were terminated due to the usual reasons like progressive disease, personal withdrawal from trial or serious adverse events, and they had a CT scan every six weeks with tumour markers and sometimes an MRI. Of note, the study design to confirm which treatment arm is superior in terms of overall survival on the assumption that the median overall survival of inferior and superior arms was 8 and 12 months respectively with a hazard ratio of 0.67. But it's interesting, Mikey, because they said this was not a non-inferiority study. This was a superiority study. So their, their conclusion is that it's non-inferior despite potentially not being set up as one? Yes, exactly. We haven't got to the results, but I think this is a superiority study rather than a non-inferiority study. Okay, well, that is very important to note because that could colour your interpretation of 
their interpretation, I guess. Exactly. There's so many interpretations to interpret. Interpretation-ception. <laughs> yes. Patients were recruited from 2014 to 2020. 100 were in the gastrointestinal cohort with small cell being attributed for 27% and 71% being large cell. 83% of this group had a KI67 of greater than 50%. In the hepatobiliary pancreatic arm, 24% was large cell, over 60% was small cell, and the KI67 was greater than 50% in 79% of patients. The treatment compliance, and this is where the data looks shocking, median number of cycles of chemotherapy was 4.5 months in the etoposide cisplatin arm and 4.5 months in the arenotecan and platinum arm, with the maximum being 13 in the etoposide arm and 17 cycles in the arenotecan arm. Of note, the median, median duration on treatment was 3.8 and 4.4 months respectively, and cisplatin was reduced in 31% of the etoposide combination and 30.5% of the arenotecan combination. Termination of the protocol occurred due to progressive disease in 48.8% of the etoposide arm and 69.5% of the arenotecan arm. And adverse events or patient refusal due to adverse events, patients were ceased in 47.6% of the etoposide arm and 24.4% of the arenotecan arm. So that bottom number is interesting. And while they didn't give a statistical significance, it shows that patients who stopped in the arenotecan arm was fewer than that of the etoposide. But of course, you can see a higher rate of progressive disease in the arenotecan arm. Thus, that might be coloring that number. When looking at the efficacy, and hold on to your seats because these numbers are terrible. The one year after last patient enrolled, they found that 88.8% of patients recruited had died. That's horrendous. Yep. And I mean, they were recruiting over six years. And so that was the I guess, seven years probably from the mark of starting this trial, but that, that's that, that's still terrible, very terrible. The median overall survival was 12.5 months in the etoposide arm versus 10.9 months in the irinotecan arm and was not statistically significant between either arm. The one-year survival rate was 50% in the etoposide and 41% in the irinotecan arm, and again, this was not statistically significant. There was no statistical difference found in any cohort of pathological findings such as small cell carcinoma or large cell carcinoma or any cohort of the primary organs. Of note, a post hoc analysis, we all love a good post hoc analysis here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. We do. And it was a small sample, Mikey. So 10 patients were looked at in the etoposide arm, found that there was a more favorable overall survival than the irinotecan arm for patients with the poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma of pancreatic origin with a median overall survival of 18.6 versus 7.9 months respectively with a hazard ratio of 4.10. Josh, do you really think you can draw any definitive conclusions from a population of 10 people? I think when you are a statistical wizard and you know what to do, maybe. For me, I don't think I'll ever be able to draw a conclusion to 10 patients in anything. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) 
good. So we're, we've agreed on that. Medium. We're both statistical muggles. I always wanted to be a mudblood. I thought they were the coolest because you kind of like, you got your foot in both worlds. A muggle born. That's it. Josh anyway. is just throwing out the slurs left and right this episode. <laughs> exactly. So medium progression free survival, 5.6 months versus in the etoposide arm versus 5.1 months in the arena toucan arm. And a response rate was pretty similar between the two arms. Objective response rates was about 50-something percent in both arms and complete response was seen in one patient in the reno arm, partial response in 40% of both arms and stable disease in a further 24%. So the objective response rate was 55.1 versus 54.5 in both arms respectively. Again, not statistically significant. When we look at toxicities, it was as expected. You had significantly higher reduction in white cells neutrophils, anemia, and low platelets in those that had the etoposide arm versus the arenotecan arm, and diarrhea was more frequently in the arenotecan arm, almost doubling that of the etoposide arm. And of course, you've got febrile neutropenia as well. So what's the discussion here? There was no primary overall survival difference between these two arms. Both can be used as standard of care. Subgroup analysis showed that maybe the pancreatic subset benefited from the etoposide and cisplatin arm. And of course, the biggest line is that the study was not designed to assess the equivalence of the two regiments and should not be considered as equal, but they do not differ between a certain level. My, my thing is this, Michael, if you have good experience with one treatment regimen, you should probably stick to that because I think while the study is great, they did a prospective randomized controlled trial, it fails to address many of our questions of which is the better. Uh, yes, there's a toxicity of difference, probably favoring the arena TKN arm, but again, I don't have that much experience and I don't really love the treatment regiment itself. I would agree with that, Josh. And I think that as we've said throughout this little mini series on neuroendocrine tumors, when you have a rare cancer, it's very hard to put together these trials. And the poor outcomes associated just with the disease morphology make getting results that much more difficult. So uh, I think that clinical experience is important. In my center, carboplatin and etoposide is the go-to. So it is really based on local guidelines because there's really not too much else to say. Um, there's not too much evidence to support uh, one over the other. Wise words, sultry voice, Michael. Thank you for your contribution. I aim to please. Josh, why don't you tell us what we'll be doing next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind? Michael, next week we have a special guest. Should I say who the special guest is or should we just get people to kind of hold on to their seats? Actually, to I, I like the element of surprise. Give, give us a clue, but don't tell us who it's going to be. Okay, the clue is this. He hails from Victoria, which is the, one of the southernmost states of Australia, but not to Tasmania. He treats predominantly gynecological oncology diseases and he has a plethora of clinical and life experience. So I look forward to our conversation with him next week. Oh, and it's a dude. <laughs> is that enough? Yes, I think we can go without that last bit by your uh, s frequent use of the he pronoun. 
Yes, just got to be careful. Anyway, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. This episode (laughs) has gone off the rails as usual, so we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. <laughs>